0: I was jealous of Leonardo. I admit it. But I wouldn't do this.
1: Destroying a genius doesn't make you one. You'll never, never be
2: half the man he is.
3: He was a thinker. He was an observer of nature. He was a very complex and thoughtful and sensitive individual. Well, the first word that came to mind was
0: misunderstood.
3: That's rare to find someone who has such deep levels of sensitivity and intelligence that's also engaged both in science and in art. You know, sort of seeing painting as the final manifestation of scientific observation.
0: But no one's really going to know 100% for sure what he's like.
2: I'm Angelica Bell and welcome to Leonardo, the official podcast episode two. If you're watching along with the drama series, then any spoilers we talk about here will only relate to the action up to and including the second episode of Leonardo. But outside of that, in this episode, we'll also transport ourselves to 15th century Florence to learn more about society's attitude to superstitions and sexuality.
1: You go back 500 years, they didn't have those labels in the same way. A majority of men in Florence probably at some point had sex with another man.
2: Freddie Highmore explains why examining masculinity was key to his involvement in the drama, both as an exec producer and actor.
0: How, as a society, did we allow certain men to feel like it was acceptable to behave in a certain way? What versions of masculinity are passed on generation after generation? and perpetuated. And I think that's something that's essential to explore.
2: And we'll hear from the woman in charge of the only da Vinci painting on public display in North America about the love life of one of his earliest inspirations, Ginevra da Vinci.
3: There is a record not of the poem itself, but a line from it where someone's asking her, can you please send to the ladies of Rome, the poem that has the line, I ask your forgiveness and I am a mountain tiger.
1: Let us begin.
2: Let's talk about sex, Renaissance sex, and what the attitudes to the LGBTQ community were like in the 15th and 16th centuries. Historian Catherine Fletcher has the knowledge on what society was like back then and knows a lot about Leonardo da Vinci.
0: Now,
2: Catherine, the first question I want to ask you is, Who was Leonardo da Vinci as you understand him? Because you have studied this period in depth. So I think you'll you'll have a great analysis for us here.
1: Leonardo is, I guess, most famous as an artist, but he's a scientist too. He's a technological expert. He was born in 1452, which is a really kind of fascinating point in European history and history of the Mediterranean to be born. It's the year before a major crisis in kind of international relations when the Ottoman Empire conquers what's now Istanbul. That really throws all the politics of the Mediterranean into turmoil. And Leonardo is probably not terribly aware of this. He's there living in this little village up in the Tuscan Hills um, called Vinci. That's where he gets his name, Leonardo from Vinci. And He's living in actually one of the richest places in Europe, so far as the economy goes. In Renaissance Florence, is a really well-off spot. And that opens up a set of opportunities for him to develop as an artist, which I think are really fascinating. So there's a kind of that combination, one of the sort of individual genius that we all talk about, but also the circumstances that allow him to observe nature and then develop art.
2: So let's talk about the man himself. Let's start off with him as a person and people not knowing too much about his sexuality do you think people would have known about it at that time or will be surprised about it now
1: to understand like, where we're coming from in terms of Leonardo's sexuality, it's a very different environment then. So if you think about today, people typically put themselves in boxes so we can say like I'm straight or I'm gay or bisexual or whatever, we're used to these identities and these labels. So you go back 500 years, they didn't have those labels in the same way. So it's much more about what you do rather than about who you are. And actually what Leonardo was apparently doing, or certainly reported to the police for doing in 1476, was having sex with other men. But actually in Florence, that was really, really common. A majority of men in Florence probably at some point had sex with another man. It was just much more routine and normal. They have quite contradictory attitudes around it, but it was certainly quite widely tolerated.
2: So there was a case against Leonardo for sodomy, for having sex with another man, and that's a documented fact.
1: So, in terms of did people know that Leonardo was having sex with other men? They may have done, they may not have done, but they probably wouldn't have been very surprised to find out that he was. Saltarelli and Da Vinci,
0: you're both under arrest for sodomy.
2: Well, Catherine, in the drama, we do see Leonardo go into a cell. Was there that sort of um, system where you'd go into custody before you'd you know, go to court? Or was it just merely the police would come and see you and give you, you know, rap on the knuckles and that was it?
1: So in the real Leonardo case, what we know is that he was denounced to the police But we've then got no further evidence about what exactly happened with the investigation. So we can look at the broader statistics and see that, in fact, only 20% of these allegations ever got to a conviction. And of the ones that got to a conviction, very, very few actually ever went to jail. So more likely, it would be a bit more like being issued with a parking ticket, you get fined, you perhaps called in, you get a bit of a rap over the knuckles, but you're not being told that, you know, you're immediately going down to the cells. I mean, so many people are being reported that in fact they probably wouldn't have enough cells to process them it's not that it's not considered a serious offense it is considered serious it's you know there's real religious opposition to men having sex with men the attitude is quite contradictory though because on the one hand yeah it's a sin they've set up a special um, vice squad effectively in the police force called the office of the night to do the investigations But at the same time, in practice, it's so widespread that they have to tolerate it. And was da Vinci religious? Well, that's a really interesting question. So there's a very, very well-known book called The Lives of the Artist by Giorgio Vasari, which is um, published in the middle of the 16th century. And what Vasari says um, in the first edition of this book is almost that um, Leonardo is keener on philosophy, um, perhaps more so than on religion, and almost to the point of suggesting that he's a bit of a heretic. The interesting thing is that that reference then gets cut from the second edition of Vasari's Lives. We don't quite know the circumstances of why exactly it gets cut, whether it's pressure from Leonardo's friends, whether Vasari's a little bit nervous about getting one of his heroes into trouble with the religious authorities, but it just disappears. So we can say at least that at the time there was some question about you know just exactly how religious leonardo was
0: you never kissed a man before no surely you've wanted no but you want to now
2: We were talking before we started this chat about some of the dynamics in gay relationships at this time. And Catherine, you mentioned it can wander into troublesome territory, especially concerning underage sex.
1: The rules about underage sex are really kind of interesting because actually the model that's considered almost the most acceptable in Florentine society is the older man with the teenage boy. And this is it, so. It's kind of the flip side of what you might expect. You might expect the fact that one of them was underage to be more of an aggravating offence. And when they prosecute, they do tend to sort of focus on the older man as being the one who's you know breaking the law more seriously. is committing the more serious offence, and the younger man is likely to have just been the sort of passive recipient um, of of the incident, as it were. Um, but it would be more transgressive in Florentine society for there to be two adult men having an equal sort of sexual relationship in some ways. The model is very much that it's this unequal relationship sometimes of kind of master and servant. It's not uncommon to find men who are having sex with their apprentices and so forth. So the power imbalance is perceived to be quite normal and and that is an uncomfortable element of their sexual culture for us today I think.
2: I mean if people don't know about his sexuality before and they you know find out about it now I don't think that they'll be that surprised do
1: you think? No I mean there's been a lot of Talk around it for a while, but I mean, certainly through a lot of art history, right through into the towards the end of the 19th century, some of the rumours were being suppressed in terms of history books and so on. So it's only really early in the 20th century, for example, that Michelangelo's sonnets to his boyfriend get given the proper pronouns because previously, when they'd been translated, the translators had changed them so they sounded like they were addressed to a woman. And then the translator, um, who does the beginning of the 20th century, puts them back in and says, no, actually, you know, the guy is writing to another man. But that's indicative of how sometimes this history has been quite hidden. But, you know, he's been around for a long time. I think one of the problems is that there's often a bit of a double standard about doing the history of same-sex relationships where people will say there's no proof. Whereas for a heterosexual relationship, they're quite happy to accept the existence of that relationship without very much proof about who was doing what to whom. Whereas with a gay relationship, they always want like that extra bit of evidence and they want to say, oh, well, maybe they were just friends. Where they wouldn't say that when it was a man and a woman. With a man and a woman, they'd assume they must be a couple.
0: Hey, you're Leonardo da Vinci? The one who painted the angel? Yes. Yeah, it was extraordinary. So lifelike. How'd you do it?
2: How well known would Leonardo have been when he was alive? Did any version of celebrity culture exist at that time?
1: I mean, these Renaissance towns are pretty small towns, actually. So it's quite possible that Leonardo would have been recognised. And he is also noted for having dressed quite eccentrically, which would have (laughs) perhaps made it more likely that people would spot him. So, you know, at the time, it was the custom to wear full length Gowns, including for men. Um, And he tended to wear one apparently that used to only come to his knees. There was sort of this pink coloured cloak. And this is, uh, you know, he has this kind of long curly beard. Um, So he's quite noticeable. And you think, yeah, probably there are going to be people around Florence, people around Milan. At least some people would have recognised him wherever he went.
0: Who are you? Stefano Giraldi of the Podesta.
2: Freddie Highmore was one of the key people who was instrumental in getting Leonardo the series made. As well as being known worldwide for his acting, he's also a writer, a director, and he had a dual role here, acting as the investigator looking into Leonardo's murder charge, as well as being one of the executive producers on the drama. I caught up with him on a break from the set of The Good Doctor in Vancouver and it was fascinating to hear how he really wanted to explore on-screen portrayals of masculinity
0: in Leonardo. I've got this production company called Alfresco Pictures. This is actually the first show to get made from it that's set up through Sony, both in the UK and in Europe and also in America. And I guess producing for me came along... I'd always had a kind of natural curiosity, I guess, to be involved in the wider process. And I was very lucky to be able to write and to direct on Bates Motel and to continue to do the same thing on The Good Doctor that I'm currently doing. And I guess this felt like a natural progression of not only wanting to be involved in telling stories that I was the main part in necessarily or even playing a part in at all but just helping other people tell their stories and and be able to be involved in the wider process.
2: So Leonardo really is your baby isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yes. And how are you feeling? No I'm really really excited uh, and and I'm excited to see what people make of it. It's a kind of perfect first project I guess because it fits into you know the sorts of stories that Claire who works with me as head of development at Alfresco and it fits very much into the stories that we've been wanting to tell and have been looking for, stories that have you know, a broader message behind them that try and spark conversations that aren't being had or you know, giving a microphone or you know, giving voice, I guess, to, to characters and ideologies and perspectives that we haven't seen before. You know, in particular, and this is specifically relevant to, to Leonardo itself, is looking at how versions of masculinity and what types of masculinity we're representing and presenting on screen it's still really narrowly defined, you know, the sort of prevailing version of what it is and often quite toxic understanding of what it is to be a male. And I think obviously it's a period show, but I think that those same issues are are looked at in, in Leonardo itself.
2: And I guess that's probably one of the reasons why this is such a great project to do, because you do talk a lot about how masculinity is portrayed. In the acting world generally, don't you? Um, Mm -hmm. And so probably this is a great project to take hold of
0: and embark on as your first one. I think they're also just more interesting characters. I think we're kind of, those are the characters I've always been drawn to as well as an actor. You know, Sean on The Good Doctor or Norman in Bates Motel. They're not your kind of stereotypical alpha male leads. (laughs) Um, And I think that's more, and, and Leonardo isn't either. And I think it's, it's not just something that feels timely or doing it because it does feel timely. I think it's timely because it's genuinely interesting and important to discuss.
2: The way sexuality is expressed, I mean, there's that platonic relationship that runs through it at the heart of it. But there's also Leonardo's sexuality as well, which one minute he was this soft you know, person I could be drawn to the next time. He's like this hard, quite erratic man. And I just thought, oh, it's it's really interesting. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, Frank and Steve, the, the writers were clearly instrumental in just putting this together and writing amazing scripts and choosing to focus on these issues. And I guess what I loved about the way they portray the central relationship in the show, which is a love story between Leonardo and Caterina, it's a platonic love story. And I think, you know, all too often on screen... There's a close bond between a man and a woman that needs to, you know, for whatever reason, is just reduced to having to be a romantic connection. It has to feel sexual in order for it to feel complete. And I just love that, you know, in this show, the heart of it is, is the two of them. It cost me a lot of money getting you into that studio.
1: Money that's all wasted now. No, it's not wasted. I- I've been commissioned by Amerigo de Benci, the painter's daughter. One client doesn't make an artist Leonardo. But you know that, don't you?
2: The parental relationship is also rather fascinating between Leonardo and his father as well. Imagine being Leonardo da Vinci and still not making your dad proud. Yes,
0: I think they have Leonardo and his and his father certainly have a complicated relationship. I think Leonardo has never lived up to his expectations. He's a constant disappointment to him. you know. No matter what he did, he wasn't the son that his father had hoped for on, on so many different levels. And I think part of that comes back to that idea of being manly. You know, Leonardo, a lot of confusion around him in the show, especially at the beginning, is down to questioning his sexuality, him coming to understand it, coming to understand that he's a gay man and what that means and how he can deal with that in society more widely. And also, I think, specifically with with his father to what extent he can open up to him and i think fatherhood is when talking about masculinity is is obviously an essential part of it it's what are what versions of masculinity are passed on generation after generation um and perpetuated and and i think that's something that's essential to explore the questions that all of us have now in terms of how as a society did we allow certain men to feel like it was acceptable to behave in a certain way how has masculinity come to be defined in a way that somehow led to such sort of atrocious behavior on on the part of so many not to get too deep because because it is i mean but because these these themes are obviously there and the themes are but but it's also worth saying that this is a very entertaining show. Um and <laughs> and it isn't in any way didactic about this. <laughs> no,
2: but it is I mean, it is entertaining, especially, you know, you just touched on the sort of that, that toxic masculinity, which almost is laughable when you watch it and you just think, gosh, you know, when you see certain um characters, you know, really believing that they have a right, you know, especially that those legal and court scenes that they can get away with whatever they want. And I, I think it's it's important to show that for us to even look at ourselves as you say in 2021 and say what were we thinking or what were people thinking
0: yeah and how did this happen something's bothering you
3: <laughs> it's my earliest memory i was just a baby at my mother's house outside vinci and a bird flew in and landed on my crib My mother was a peasant girl. A head full of superstition. And she was terrified. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know what it meant. So she took me to the old woman in the village. And my mother believed what the old woman had told her. What? Portalo via. Portalo via prima che
0: tutto il villaggio sia dannato. She said I was cursed.
2: Another one of the themes that is really apparent is about superstitions. You know, we know in the Renaissance time, you know, that was something that everyone would talk about. There's so many references to birds um, and curses. How do you feed into those tensions? And did you think it was important to portray that with, with such emphasis?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, during the, I guess, the development process, I didn't, I wasn't quite as aware of how big those themes might end up reading in terms of the, yeah, superstitions. And and I think you mentioned, yeah, birds, but I think nature more widely. I think that there's, you know, a real fascination and and curiosity that Leonardo has for the natural world. Um, And there's a spirituality of, you know, there are these scenes where he's sitting outside and just taking it in and, and probably in a way that in the last year, all of us have, had a lot more time to be alone and look out the window and think a little bit more and be a bit more grounded about those day-to-day interactions with nature. That sounds a little bit um, self-indulgent, doesn't it? But you know what I mean. No, but I
2: totally totally understand what you're saying, because when you're on a fast-paced, you know, wheel and going through things, going through life, you just get on with it. But even I, I'll walk out and I've been going out about six o'clock in the morning, I'll look up I hear the noises and take the time in. So maybe, maybe Leonardo wasn't strange. He just was doing what maybe we
0: should do generally. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, taking in as an artist the natural, yeah, that natural world.
1: I believe that nature is the greatest artwork. The only perfect act of creation. Like the flight of birds or the meandering pattern of rivers or... The stories and the faces of the people we meet.
0: Though I think the other thing that's fascinating about him is that he was both a scientist and an artist. And I feel like today, I was thinking about this the other day, the idea that, that for us, we've got to a point where science and, and art are just put on the opposite sides of the spectrum. There's this kind of dichotomy, even the way that we're taught it. At school and at university, the like, science and art are just immediately divided and you kind of have to choose one path over another, which is, I think, a shame. And Leonardo was brilliant at both. You want your promotion, don't you? It has already been promised.
1: Stefano, you can't expect the French governor to keep his promise. Not if you embarrass him by failing to get Leonardo to confess. Where are you going? To make sure
0: Leonardo hangs.
2: As an EP and actor, how do you balance those? This is this is a question I, I'm interested in because when I hear the word exec producer, I just think responsibility, you know, looking after everybody, but at the same time having to act and perform and get into this character. You know, do you, how do you step into one role and, and into another?
0: That's one of the things that's been... I guess for me exciting about having worked in television is just getting to naturally become excited by those other things and naturally learn, I guess, to wear several different hats. On Bates Motel and on The Good Doctor, the you know, the directors will change every episode and so sometimes you'll you know, we're filming season four at the moment of that show and there'll be a director who's never worked on the show before. And so I think naturally you have a greater sense of responsibility to to look out for the wider show and to be curious about those things given that you and the writers you know these days aren't on set either so yeah as an actor you feel responsible for those wider things too and to to ensure the continuity of everything and so perhaps through that I've been you know more aware of it but also it's it's very much this isn't a show that I created and I think you know ultimately all of us were there as as producers just hoping to support frank and steve's vision and help them tell the story that they want to tell and offer suggestions and be there in whatever way we could but ultimately aware that their vision was was at the forefront of it all
2: Freddie, thank you so much for talking to you i really enjoyed speaking to you
0: this was nice. I, it's my first one of these. I feel like I probably waffled on a, a few moments and like went on long tangents, but then you can always cut that bit out if, if it's that? not no, I'm interesting. interesting.
2: I think we should keep those in. <laughs> <laughs> We've got lots more from Freddie to come later on in the series.
0: Next, though. I wonder if you would accept a commission from me. My daughter, Ginevra, is to be married and I would like a portrait to mark the occasion.
2: We're headed to America to find out about the only da Vinci painting on public display in the United States.
0: Ginevra, dear, please. There's someone I'd like you to meet. This is the artist who's to paint your portrait. Leonardo da Vinci. Messer
1: Leonardo. I'm pleased to meet you.
2: Ginevra da Vinci is one of Leonardo's earliest portraits and hangs in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. In episode two of Leonardo, we meet the woman who was the focus of this painting. And right now, we've got the woman whose job it is to look after Ginevra, a portrait that is full of secrets.
3: Hi, my name is Eve Straussman-Flanzer, and I'm the curator and head of the Italian and Spanish paintings department at the National Gallery of Art. I don't even want this ridiculous portrait. When the painting was acquired in 1967, there was tremendous media attention. A lot of the information on the acquisition of the painting has remained undisclosed. So, for instance, it was agreed when it was purchased that the amount paid for it would never be shared with the public. So there's speculation about that, but... Even I don't know for sure. You know, I'm not sure how many people hold that secret, but it was a period of long negotiations for the Lichtenstein family to part with the work and allow it for an undisclosed price to be purchased by the National Gallery of Art. It is priceless, and with certain works, Uh, certainly paintings by Leonardo, it's really hard to put a value on them because they are both of astronomical value and then priceless, right? And so there's no sort of benefit to putting a value. I mean, the, the goal is to keep this picture available for the public. The National Gallery is open free of charge. So anyone can come and see her without cost. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. This is
1: wonderful news. You must
3: be
2: so pleased, Leonardo. Uh, Funny vino, grazie. I don't know. What's
3: wrong? It's the portrait. It's supposed to be a happy one celebrating her wedding. Yes, and?
1: Geneva is not happy.
3: Her her sorrow is written all over her face.
0: Leonardo, don't.
3: I am a disciple of experience, What
0: does that even mean?
3: It means I paint what I see. I, I paint my truth. You've
2: lost your job as first apprentice. You've lost your place at the workshop. And now you have a second chance.
1: Why do you insist on making life so difficult? Paint what you ask and don't complicate things.
3: When the painting was brought to the United States, it was brought on a flight, a commercial flight, in an American tourister suitcase that was purchased in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and specially outfitted inside to hold the picture. Three first-class tickets were purchased on this flight, Mario Modestini, uh, the conservator, uh, transported the painting in the American or suitcase to New York first, and then it flew on a private plane to DC. He knew that while in the air, if something happened with the pressure or the humidity, there's not much more that he could do other than use wet towels to raise the humidity around the painting and to drink dry martinis to calm his nerves. And the painting had a nickname, Bird. And so when they finally landed in York, the note and the telegram was Bird Flies. Oh, I love that,
2: Bird Flies. Now, there are a few theories of how the Ginevra painting came to be made. One of those is that her family commissioned the portrait for her wedding, which is what we see play out on screen
3: in Leonardo. But then the other option, because one of the things that is that is unique <laughs> about the picture is that it's double-sided. So, you know, you have the image of the portrait of Ginevra on the front, but on the back, then you have a faux porphyry background uh, with a palm and laurel leaf. And that was discovered in relatively recent memory to be uh, the family symbol or emblem or impresa of Bernardo Bembo, who was the ambassador to Florence from Venice. Who shall I say is calling?
0: Bernardo Bembo, the ambassador from his serenity, Agostino Barbarigo, the Dutch of Venice, to the Duchy of Milan.
1: Well. If you want me
2: to use your full title, that's going to take a while, you'd better sit down.
3: And he had a platonic love relationship with Ginevra. And there are poems in the period by members of the court, even by Lorenzo de' Medici, celebrating their platonic love, which is based on her virtues and her beauty and her chastity. And so then they would have this relationship and this exchange of letters and we see his, his family coat of arms on the back. So the question is, was this commissioned as a marriage portrait was it commissioned later by Bembo? Some speculate, well, it could be both. The leaves in my hands. <laughs> the laurel in the palm, drawn from Bernardo's family crest, because it gives you joy. Ginevra DiBenti was a woman uh, born of a wealthy banking family in Florence. We know that she married at 16. We have evidence from archival documents that she was sick in her 20s and that the couple and the marriage remained childless. But we also have this, you know, wonderful little tidbit from her because apparently poems were written about her love, her platonic love with Bembo, but there's a record not of the poem itself, but a line from it where someone's asking her, can you please send to the ladies of Rome the poem that has the line, I ask your forgiveness and I'm a mountain tiger. There's still so much
2: we're discovering and learning about women's place throughout history. And Ginevra de Benci is full of surprises, not least that there are two sides to her portrait.
3: I think it's a great surprise because. You know, most often this painting is reproduced just the image of Ginevra de Benci, and there isn't an awareness unless you're a specialist or a frequent visitor to the museum that there's this other side that reveals a whole other facet of this fascinating story of this portrait, We are fortunately at the National Gallery of Art do show the painting so that you can see both sides, but that also raises interesting questions of, you know, in the period, so we're talking in the 15th century, how was it displayed? You know, was it on a hook or a ring so it could be flipped? Was it sort of freestanding in some sort of easel so it could have been turned around? Was it just the idea that people would only see the front, but those who were in the know, such as Ginevra and her family and Bembo, would know that secretly on the back, you know, he was sort of holding her from behind in in a certain uh, metaphoric but also literal sense. Um, So, you know, that it, it was not common, and that makes this picture exceptional in Leonardo's oeuvre.
2: The drama leans into why this portrait was such a turning point in art history, not least because before Ginevra, the
3: standard view was profile only in works like this. Now, Leonardo revolutionised that in Ginevra by showing her at a three-quarter angle And I think this really fits into his early training. He was trained in the workshop of Verrocchio, who was a sculptor.
1: There, how's that?
3: But you're looking down, Madonna. You need to hold the book up higher. Better? You're sitting at three quarter profile.
1: For what?
3: Three quarter profile, portraits are usually painted in full face or in profile.
0: But if I hold the book
1: directly in front of me, I'll block your view. You
3: would. This whole idea of the propriety of the female gaze and the degree to which women were, it was seen as appropriate for women to make eye contact with individuals would have added an element of interest and an intrigue to it, that she is gazing out at us and we're not just gazing at her. Now you see the females that are playing a more active role in the relationship between being seen and seeing out. It becomes more dynamic. To possess beauty, a painting must also have mystery and meaning.
1: I failed to see the mystery and meaning of a tree.
3: <laughs> it's not just any tree. It's a juniper, a ginepro.
1: Like Ginevra, it's a pun, a play on my name.
3: And a traditional symbol of virtue.
1: Are you saying you think I have virtue?
0: Yes, I believe you do, in abundance.
1: You are a clever man, Leonardo da Vinci. Apply all the mystery and meaning
0: you wish, but you will not succeed in painting the truth.
3: And why is that? Because my father is paying for this, and he does not wish to see the truth of who I am. It's a fascinating painting because when you look at it, you see Ginevra's head with the radiant golden curls set in contrast to a juniper bush that basically envelops the whole back of her head, which plays into Leonardo's interest in scientific observation of nature. So you have that element, but then her name was Ginevra. And then in Italian, Juniper is Ginepro. so you have this pun in play on her name. And in addition to that, there's another level of meaning because Juniper also symbolizes chastity, so that plays into sort of her virtue, even the motto on the back. So there's mottos on the back that it's in Latin, but it translates in English to Beauty adorns virtue. So you see all these layers of symbolism and meaning that are on both the front and the back of the painting.
2: In the drama, we see the frustration and anger of Aidan Turner's Leonardo that his original painting had been altered, the image had been cut down, and that is
3: indeed true. So we know that the painting was cut down because on the back, where you see it's a wreath of palm and laurel that that symbolises bembo, it's cut down at the bottom. What we don't know is how much it was cut down at the bottom. This portrait will live beyond you. How would you like to be remembered?
1: As an honest woman.
2: So Eve told us earlier about the nerve-wracking journey in the 1960s, transporting this priceless painting across continents to its new home in the United States. But there are continued nerve-wracking decisions to make and huge risks over the preservations of
3: paintings like this that are hundreds of years old. As you may know, varnish discolors often over the years, and so conservators and curators are always in dialogue about whether work should be cleaned or treated or revarnished. You know, that's part of the curator's job, the sort of ongoing care of the work so that it stays sound physically, but also appears in the best possible light for the public. It's quite terrifying. It's a tremendous responsibility. And a gift.
2: Huge thanks to Eve straussman Flanzer, there, curator of Leonardo's Ginevra da Vinci.
1: I am so proud to have sat for you.
2: So if we've learned anything about da Vinci so far, it's that he continues to surprise us, and likely will do for a long time to come, which is why next time we'll dig deeper into what it means to be a polymath then and now. We'll also hear from the person responsible for casting the drama, and Leonardo himself is back, as Aidan Turner unravels some of the mysteries around playing da Vinci.
1: How did a human being do this? Like, How is this physically possible? It seems beyond a skill, it seems beyond training. It seems out of this world, it really does. And, and they're still so perfect, these paintings. And going and walking around the Louvre and just like in awe of all of this the spectacle and being the only
3: people there and, and, you know, quite literally sitting with his paintings for, for minutes on end, um, going, how the hell am I going to do this? Like, If I can't even understand how he did these paintings, how
1: are you going to get into who the man was? And that's essentially what we want to do with this show. We, we know the great works, but we want to get into who this man was, what's in his heart, what's in his mind.
2: This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's 4th Floor Creative in association with Lux Vide. Produced by Natalie Jamieson and James Deacon. Edited by Chris Attaway. Sound mix by Mark Pittam. And production support from Barney Lee.